passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Hello, everybody. Welcome to your UFC 282 post show. I am John Pollock, and joining me, the man who loves himself a great split draw, he is Eric Marcotte, who is here with us. Eric, how are you? I am doing well. Like you said, I'm just so ecstatic from that split draw. I haven't been able to sleep. Uh, it's it's the best thing for the entire sport, really. Well, you're. Uh, I guess you're, you're in better spirits than uh, Magomed Ankalaev after that decision was read, which we will uh, discuss uh, in in great detail. This was quite the weekend when it comes to judges' scorecards that were uh, debatable, to say the very least, uh, between Bellator on Friday night. Did you get to see Bellator on Friday? I did watch Bellator on Friday, and I will say the worst scorecard of the entire weekend was certainly turned in on that Bellator show, although I think we're going to spend probably... 80% of this entire show just talking about judging. But we'll start off with the Bellator main event. Yeah, well, it, I think it does kind of set the table for Saturday's UFC card because you had one judge in uh, Douglas Crosby who turned in a card on Friday's Bellator 289 event for the main event between uh, Rafion Stotts and Danny Sabatello, which Stotts won by split decision uh, with judges Eric Cologne and Brian Miner scoring it 48-47 for Rafion Stotts. Doug Crosby scored it 50-45 for Danny Sabatello. And uh, this was a card that, let's let's defer to MMADecisions.com that said, in the history of their database, there has never been a card of 50-45 for the loser of the fight. Doug Crosby saw all five rounds for Danny Sabatello. Now, I just watched this fight earlier today. I thought that, and I might have been, um, I thought that Stotts won 
three rounds. Um, and then I give him a fourth round. I had him winning uh, all but the first round. I can see certain arguments uh, towards rounds. It seemed that, you know, 48, 47 stots was a pretty common card that I saw. Can't say I've seen any more than one card of 50, 45, though, for Danny Sabatello today. No, I had it uh, 48, 47 for stots. And I mean, Sabatello had long periods in which he, uh, you could say he was in the advantageous position with his grappling. But the thing was, he was Did doing nothing. no damage while effect- while attempting no submission. So it, according to the scoring criteria, that shouldn't count for anything, really. And on two of the three scorecards, that was reflected. On one of them, not so much. Yeah, I mean, this was... When they put up the stats at the end and you had Stotts like greatly outlanding him throughout the fight, but the control time was like over 10 minutes for Sabatello. But when I say he did nothing with these positions, like that's that's not hyperbole. Like he was just holding and positional control, but like you've got the the criteria that like Cage control is when all other criteria are absolutely even of effective striking, effective uh, submissions, and then you go to aggression if you need to, and then it is control. And, you know, in all of these rounds, it was uh, outside of the first. I mean, I I saw Stotts like he did damage. It wasn't like overwhelming amounts, but even in that final round where he's being held and he's just dropping these elbows to the point that he like cuts the side of Sabatello's head. Um, the fact that you can get to five rounds uh, for Danny Sabatello is just mind boggling to me. And Doug Crosby is certainly a judge whose um, his resume precedes him. He has been a very highly scrutinized judge who still is used for high profile fights, including the Patty Pimblett fight against Jared Gordon on Saturday, uh, where he was one of the judges that we're going to talk about a lot of these scorecards, but not only scoring it for Patty Pimblett, which I don't think is crazy, crazy. It's crazy, but not crazy, crazy. Scoring the first round for Patty Pimblett is crazy times eight. Okay, I don't know how you get to a 10-9 Jared Jared Gordon scorecard. So not a great weekend for Doug Crosby and his scorecards in these two fights. No, uh, not a good uh, look at all for him. And let's not forget, this is a time in which the UFC and MMA as a whole is being heavily scrutinized for betting scandals. And when you get scorecards like that, you're going to get even more attention on it. So uh, not a good look. Yeah, I, I can go into this whole thing, but the fact that like judges, to me, you have to be able to defend your cards and commissions don't they don't want these judges speaking publicly. They're not held to any kind of you know public scrutiny or defense of a 50-45 for the losing fighter. And to me, it's just like these these things continually happen. And I'm sometimes sympathetic towards the judging because it's often we complain when it, there's an awful decision, but never talk about great decisions that get handed down. But when you see a consistency like this and, you know, it should be expected that you're getting uh, an accurate score that is within a certain range that we can see close rounds. You understand that there is a chance that it goes the other way. I think everyone understands that about fighting. But when there is such a discrepancy and like the first round of Jared Gordon and Patty Pimblett, I think that's like, that's a scorecard that you really need to defend if you are scoring it the other way when it just feels like I watched a completely different round than two of the three judges did. 
Yeah, um, I feel like I'm usually uh, fairly easy on the judges, all things considered. I mean, I, I think a lot of people aren't completely educated to what the scoring criteria is in mixed martial arts, as proved on UFC broadcasts, even when you have yep. a great fighters like Dominic Cruz, who clearly do not know how a fight is scored. And uh, that obviously goes for the fan base, who's educated largely through the commentators and fighters as well. That being said... Some of these recent scorecards are like you can't when you look at the criteria, you cannot see how you'd arrive at the conclusion of, for example, 50 to 45 for Danny Sapatello. Right. And uh, it's under a microscope when these scorecards get turned in like that. And on the grand stage of a UFC pay-per-view, all the more so. Well, we're going to get into UFC 282. I'm sure this this topic will uh, arise in several of these fights, but they they announced uh, 18,455 with a gate of 4.4 million at the T-Mobile Arena for the card that lost its main event after Yuri Prohaska was out with a devastating shoulder injury and Glover Teixeira, who looked to be the odd man out. And by the end of tonight, I mean, this guy uh, gifted with... Another opportunity, and uh, he he got the pass, the hot potato over to Anthony Smith, who now becomes the uh, the, the odd man out. Um, but yes, we had um, a full house here at the T-Mobile Arena, and our new main event of Jan Blahovich against Magomed Ankalaev, who was a heavy favorite coming into this fight. And early on in the in this fight, we saw. I, I thought a very close uh, first round. Blahovich was was connecting, and you saw some swelling around the eye of Ankalaev. Ankalaev uh, continuing as well with, with front kicks. I thought this was a very close round, and at the end of it, I scored the first round for Ankalaev. How did you go in the first? Because I thought this was this was one of the debated rounds that I think you could go either way if you wanted to. I scored the opening round for Ankalaev as well. It was a very uh, close round. There wasn't a lot of activity or uh, significant moments from either fighter, but I thought the uh, front kicks to the body in particular from Ankalaev may have been the difference maker in this one, and I, I scored the round for him. The second round, Jan Blahovich really starts to open up with his leg kicks, and these were um, very, very effective uh, for for Jan Blahovich. As I'm uh, pulling it up here, throughout the fight, uh, Blahovich would land 25 of 29 leg kicks. So this really took off in the second round. He's going after the left leg, and at and at one point, uh, you see. Uncle Ayev just start to like be hopping on his leg, really uh, outlining the the damage that these uh, leg kicks are 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 doing to him, and nearly loses his balance, has to switch up his stance uh, to orthodox, and this continues into the third, where now Blahovich is going after the other leg of of Uncle Ayev, and then it's that leg that he's having problems with. So Uncle Ayev is just not having any answer for these, and his corner would eventually get into him. It's like, why are you just standing in front of him like this? And so midway through the third, he starts to put on a lot more like forward pressure to try and offset the, the kicks and not give Blahovich the chance. Uh, but Blahovich is also stopping all of Uncle takedowns up until this point. Um, so I thought the second and third were Blahovich rounds. Apparently, uh, some saw the third round for Magomed Uncle which was one that I, I really did not uh, possibly understand. But uh, Derek Cleary did score it for Uncle in the third. Uh, can I assume you did not score round three for uh, Uncle Live? 
Uh, no, I did not. Ankalaev did very good work throughout the round, but at the end of the day, it was the damage from those leg kicks from Blahovich that were the story of the round. It was the most damaging moments. It was the most significant moments. And I do think that it's hard to justify a scorecard for Ankalaev when you take that into account. So I had Blahovich up on the scorecards going into round four. Okay, so you and I had the same scorecards going into the championship rounds, two to one for Blahovich. Uh, round four is when Uncle starts to do a lot of clinch work and he gets Blahovich off the fence and gets his takedown and then goes to the back. He's working in half guard, dropping elbows. Very good round for Uncle to get back into things. So, um, I had it even going into the fifth, and then the fifth was a pretty dominant round for Ankalaev, where Blahovich goes down to his back pretty early in the round, and you don't know if he injured himself in, in some moment or was caught, but he's on his back, and Ankalaev uh, uses it for all it's worth. The crowd is not too entertained by this strategy, nor was Dana White, it turned out, who <laughs> later just said, I was zoning out after the third round in this fight. He just thought this was an awful fight. And so he traps Blahovich. He's dropping strikes. It's, uh, Blahovich is covering up at one point. It to me, it was on the fence of like 10 8 territory, but I didn't quite go there. I had it 10 9 for Uncle Live. So, after this fight, I had it 48-47 for Magomed Ankalaev. Your scorecard, Eric, was? I had the exact same scorecard with all of the same rounds as yourself. I, I do think a 10-8 for Ankalaev in the final round is completely fair, but I didn't go that way personally. Yeah, it's if you wanted to, you could. And for me, it was, okay, well, my scorecard, it's how much did Ankalaev win if you're going 10-9 or 10-8. So 48-47s from both of us. Uh, none of us had a 50-45? Uh, no, neither of no. us did. How strange. Stunning. So we go to the judges' scorecards. 48-47, Blahovich. It's like, hmm, that's, uh, it's like, there you go to the first round. It's like, the first round was close. I don't agree with that, but that's probably your route to a 48-47 Blahovich card. 48-46 for Ankalaev, which would mean a 10-8 round in there. And then we go to the final scorecard. 47-47, rendering this a split draw. Now, the hidden gem of this all is that as they're reading the scorecards, Jan Blahovich is there, and he's gesturing towards the assumed winner, Ankalaev. Like, he's got his arm out. He is ready to uh, acknowledge the new light heavyweight champion, and then they read it's a split draw. And, dude, you have never heard a more honest post-fight interview than when Jan Blahovich is acknowledging that... I don't know if I lost that fight. I definitely didn't win. <laughs> and he's just explaining, you know, I I don't know. I My head got rattled in that fight. I, I don't know. Please don't put me on the spot here. I don't want to say something that's going to mess up my chances here. Then they go to interview Uncle Live, and through his interpreter, is furious, cannot fathom losing this fight. And through the interpreter, stating he doesn't know if he wants to fight here again, which was later clarified by Uncle Live. He doesn't know if he wants to fight in Las Vegas again because of the judges, but will fight in the UFC. Not realizing these judges are not tied to Las Vegas. These are judges that can go anywhere, as Doug Crosby can tell you. He can be in Connecticut one night and Nevada the next. So I, I don't know about that argument. But he was furious. And then Jan comes over and says, yeah, he's right. Give him the belt. <laughs> like You've never heard a more defeated man than Jan Blahovich here in this post-fight interview just saying, you're right. You're right. I Give him the belt. <laughs> and we're leaving. I don't know. <laughs> 
how you could have any clamoring for a rematch between these two when you have one that's pretty much saying, yeah, I lost. Like, this is silly. Let's just let's move on. I'm done. And that's that's how things ended. And Dana White afterwards, he hated this fight. I thought he was more negative on this fight than it truly warranted. But he's going in a totally different direction, stating that next month it will be Glover Teixeira against Jamal Hill at UFC 283 for the vacant title. And for those of you watching ESPN Plus, you got to see analyst Anthony Smith slash Jamal Hill's opponent in March find out in real time that his fight is off. You have no fight now coming up and your opponent is now fighting for the title and you have to figure this out on the air. Some truly amazing theater in the UFC where communication is just uh, not even uh, not even on the list of priorities. Oh, so much drama attached to this one fight. Yeah, Dana White went scorched earth on this one. I I didn't think it was that bad. I didn't think it was great. I'm not going to say this was the fight of the night by any stretch, but God, I have seen so much worse than than this fight. I mean, it was. Yeah, I mean, oh, there was God. some drama with the leg kicks and then Ankaliyev fighting with basically no legs. There, there is something to it. Uh, as far as the, as the decision is. Uh, it was scored. I actually thought all the scorecards were were fair, with the exception of giving uh, the Ankalai of the third round. That's completely the, out the there, draw. But. I can get to because you're essentially st- two and three. No one's arguing round four and five. No one's arguing for Ankalai. The only argument is if you go ten nine ten eight. So it comes down to a close first round, and that's where you say you have to be able to accept either way. So if you're going one two three for Yan and the ten eight in the fifth. That's how you get to a draw. I see that as a much more defensible scorecard than round three for Uncle Iev, which I just don't see a path to that scorecard. So you're right. I, I, I see that as the more egregious score than, than the draw. I think the draw, it's, it's disappointing because you get this outcome that leaves the title vacant. But yeah, to me, it's much tougher to defend that third round. Yeah, I mean, I, I went back and so when the decision was read, I was shocked, admittedly, because I thought Ankalaev won with clarity. I did go back to watch the first round after, after I saw that all three judges were in agreement that Blahovich won that first round. So I was like, okay, mm-hmm. clearly I was missing something here. And I went back and I still scored it for Ankalaev, but it, it was a very close round. You could have went either way without much argument. So uh completely fair it's amazing that we got agreement across all three judges for round one but a descent on round three like that to me is fascinating Uh, very strange and in the end it it is a disappointing result to a disappointing fight and it leaves this division in an even even stranger place when we're looking at glover to versus jamal hill for the next title shot i mean this light heavyweight okay. division is just, it just seems, it's at a rough post-John Jones uh, era, I will say. Uh, I, the John Jones era was pretty rough, too, towards the end. It, I mean, <laughs> it, at least this event took place in the, uh, in the city it was advertised to in December. <laughs> Unlike our, yes. our 2018, uh, <laughs> let's pack up and move to L.A. Uh, event. But um, they're making the decision to go to Glover Teixeira and Jamal Hill. I can... Understand that there is not a high clamoring for this rematch, that they wanted to just move on with this division, and Uncle Iev and Blahovich is not going to mean a thing in Brazil, and 
They're going with now you have Glover Teixeira and Devison Figueredo on this card in January. Um, it sucks for Anthony Smith, but this is the power the UFC has that they are just going, hey, we want to fight for this date. Who's around? And we're going to make it, whether it is fair to all parties involved. I would say Uncle Liev does feel as though he is, uh, uh, you know, a guy that, you know, justifiably, I think, upset with this decision. And we will see what 2023 holds for him if he fights for the title. One would think he would be uh, there, but might have to take another fight now in the interim before he gets back to a a championship opportunity. Uh, This is true. And from Dana White's reaction, it's unlikely to be the rematch of Jan Blachowicz. But uh, nonetheless, I don't know. This entire division's just in a strange situation where everyone from the top-ranked fighter to the 15th-ranked fighter kind of feels like they're on the exact same level, and anything can happen with any combination of these guys. So when we're talking about like deserving or undeserving title shots, it's like, I don't feel too strongly about much of anything. But Magomed Ankalaev does feel like he should be fighting for a title in his next bout, despite the disappointing outcome here. Yeah. Uh, worth noting in, in the fifth round from uh, the UFC stats here is that uh, Uncle Ayev landed 18 of 37 strikes. Blahovich 0 for 2 in round number five, uh, which compares to his one strike landed in the fourth round. So, I mean, Jan Blahovich largely just completely shut down in the championship rounds. And it, it, was, it was a bad performance from Jan in the championship rounds. And, of course, he did not train for a five-round fight. Keep this in mind. But, I mean, he was fighting a man with no legs going into the championship rounds. Everybody was convinced this man was moments away from a stoppage heading into round four. And he failed to do anything for the rest of the fight. So, I, I think a very disappointing final ten minutes to this one for uh, Jan Blachowicz, a man who's fought five rounds on multiple occasions in the past. Yes, and uh, Uncle Ive did state afterwards as well his his knee was compromised, but didn't go into uh, further detail there whether that was a result of, of the leg kicks or something that was uh, pre-existing. But that was our main event, so we come out with once again uh, vacant. We'll go into t- 2023 as your light heavyweight champion. But let's discuss Patty Pimblett and Jared Gordon at lightweight. Uh, Patty Pimblett, quite the week that uh, Patty had. Very uh, lots of drama on the on the Patty Pimblett side and then comes in and no shortage of it in this fight. So we start off and dude, Jared Gordon cannot miss in this first round with his left hooks. He's then mixing in rights, goes back to the left hand and then Pimblett starts to land using uh, leg kicks as Gordon changes his stance. And then Gordon is on top in his guard as the round ends. But it was clearly um, the left hooks to me that were the difference in this round. The second, a much closer round, uh, Pimblett is working for a choke and then Gordon goes for a takedown but loses it. And we see another left hook when Pimblett connects with a right and an uppercut. And as Pimblett gets out of the clinch, he has a sequence of kicks and punches and there's a, an eye poke as well to Gordon. Close round after two. You could certainly give this round to Pimblett if, if you wanted to. And then the third round, it was a tough round to score because there was very little, uh, very little damage. This was kind of like one of those. Danny Sabatello rounds where Gordon clinched him and controlled him against the fence, but, you know, did not inflict a whole lot of damage. Pimblet eventually circled off of the fence and then Gordon got another takedown and slid off the back uh, towards the end. So the argument I heard afterwards was, well, Jared Gordon did not do a whole lot in the third round. Neither did Pimblet. Like, I think like this is one where, again, like a 29-28 card for Pimblet is one that I disagree with. I went with Gordon in these two rounds, but I can buy a 29-28 round for Pimblet, uh, or fight for Pimblet. 
the first round uh, uh, for, for Patty Pimblett blows my mind. I just I, I don't get that one at all. All three judges scoring it 29-28. Uh, but the big focus was that referees Ron McCarthy and Doug Crosby scoring the first round uh, for Patty Pimblett. And that um, I, ju- I just could not believe that one. So uh, Patty Pimblett. <laughs> This man is either the most delusional fighter or the most self-aware because, dude, this guy gets on the mic. Was that the fight of the night or what? And he's just <laughs> – I mean he totally owned this and part of me like appreciated how he handled this instead of like – like he just – it was like, of course I won this fight. I mean it was just playing in as like the ultimate heel uh, to to this audience and uh, and there you go. There was a great video. Where they're shooting, like Dana White is by the barstool guys who have the sponsorship with Patty Pimblett, and they read the scorecards and do the stunned looks in the faces of everybody around. Is that what a gift that was just given to Patty Pimblett here? Because I don't think anybody that was anticipating these scorecards, maybe maybe Patty Pimblett included, thought this was going his way. And as I'm hearing Bruce Buffer read the cards, and before he says the winner, you see him gesture towards Pimblet. I'm like, you're kidding me. Um, but there you go. Patty Pimblet gets the win. And, you know, Eric, this is a deep division. And, you know, he is he is going to be thrown in there with with the Lions at lightweight with, with a win coming out of this. And I think this is certainly in the long term. I think people are going to assess what is the... What what is the ceiling for Patty Pimblett, and is he ready for more qualified lightweights above the Jared Gordon level? Um, so I, I'm I'm trying to think where to start here. Uh, <laughs> I put a lot out there. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot there's a lot of threads that I can start with. I'm not sure which one to pick up first. Uh, I guess I'll start off the scoring and say that my thoughts on the belt were exactly the same as yours. It kind of reminded me of the. Piotr Jan, uh, Sean O'Malley fight in the sense that I can see uh, a scorecard for Pimblet. I don't think it's unjustifiable. Yet at the same time, I didn't score it that way, and I didn't really see it's, anyone it's else. It's tough. It's, it it's way, tough. You know, especially three of them getting to that scorecard when it seems that, like, I would imagine if if you were with a group of like ten people, it's like how many of those ten are going to have a twenty nine twenty eight card? Like, what are the odds of that happening? The probability of all three getting to twenty nine twenty eight, and then Two of the judges having the first for him, um, just all those things coming together was was a hard to fathom. As far as the next level of competition for him is concerned, I mean, it, it's very tough to say what his ceiling is. I don't look at uh, Jared Gordon as one of the guys approaching uh, the rankings at, at lightweight, and I mean, I think most people thought Jared Gordon won this fight. Pimblet's been damaged and pretty much all of his UFC fights leading up to this one. Um, he's, he's not a prospect either. You know, this is a guy who's been fighting for quite a while now. He has a lot of experience. I don't really look at him as a guy on the, on the way up, but more, more as an established fighter at this point, you know what you're going to get with him. Um, this is his 23rd, death, this is his 23rd yeah. pro fight. I mean, only fourth in the UFC, but you're right. Like this is not somebody that's just still in the, early stages of their career. And, you know, I, I go back, Eric, to when I was in high school, okay? And I was in grade 12 math. And I really struggled that year. Math and me did not get along. And I went into that final exam and I pretty much needed like to hit a home run to pass this course. So I did the exam and I wasn't even given my percentage afterwards. The teacher told me, John, are you going to be continuing math next year in your last year of high school? I said, no. It's optional. I am not taking math next year. 
She was like, okay, I'm going to pass you with the promise that you're not going to continue because you will not do well by me awarding you here to go to the next level. So I feel that Patty Pimblett really needed a grade 12 Miss Havaris moment where (laughs) he wins this fight, but he is now in the deeper end of the lightweight division because of this win. And I don't know if he is ready for that. I mean, if the UFC are desperately trying to get this man ranked, the 15th ranked lightweight is currently Tony Ferguson. So there is a path to the rankings for Pimblet, but uh, I don't and even you have that big card in London fight, that I, I would ass- I would assume they are going to want him to turn around in, in March for the for the London card. I mean, if if you think about like the actual top lightweights, I'm talking about not, not even the champion. Let's just talk about like the, the hitters. Let's talk about Dustin Poirier. Let's talk about Michael Chandler, Justin Gaethje, Charles Oliveira, Armin Sarukian. A- okay, like even if you're oh going down God. the Armin rankings, Saru- <laughs> Mateus Gamrot, Benil Dariush. Uh, name the person. It doesn't seem like it would be a competitive fight. Uh, so perhaps that's not the direction you should look at with Patty Pimblett. Maybe you should just keep trying to find entertaining fights for the guy and try to grow his popularity he can he already seems like he's caught on with a lot of people this may have not been a good week for his popularity but just in general he felt like uh the guy with the most eyes on him going into this card and he can become a legitimate uh fight night headlining type of act even if he's never a genuine contender so there's still ways you can build him up without feeding him to the dogs that will inevitably tear him down Okay, here's here's my one. Just just for the sheer entertainment of the promotion. Patty Pimblett versus Hanato Moicano. Oh my god. Okay, so first off, Hanato Moicano would destroy this guy in a fight, so I don't know. That's fine. That, That's fine. Let's that, get the most out of this. This is about Moicano now, okay? <laughs> I'm with you. I love Hanato Moicano. This guy How is, often do you watch the uh, countdown show? Okay? Because me it's rarely. I would watch that countdown never, special for, for those two. So um, Oh, that, he is a charismatic charismatic machine, Hanato Moicano is. I, I love it. You've sold me on it. This is what I want to see next now. <laughs> as much as Moicano's angling for a fight with like Conor McGregor, maybe Pimblet's a bit more realistic. It was funny because afterwards um they announced that uh uh, Drickus Duplessis and Darren Till was the fight of the night, and everyone who got a finish on this card, which was every fight except for the top two, got $50,000 bonuses. Dana White was very generous on Saturday. So that means uh, Patty Pimblett, the only winner to not get uh, a, a, a disclosed bonus. Yeah, that's that must be a, a record of some sort. Or not a prestige match, surely it never happened before in the UFC. The only winner to not get a bonus on the entire card. Uh, wow. Then we go on to uh, Santiago Ponzinibbio against Alex uh, Morono, who was replacing Robbie Lawler on five days' notice, and therefore this was a 180-pound catchweight fight. And Morono, uh, credit to this guy, he's on a four-fight win streak and takes this fight on very, very short notice. And I thought, I thought one, one the first round here. You had uh, Ponzinibbio going for the body, uh, mixing in leg kicks, but then it was Morono landing with a right hand over the top. And then a spinning back fist from Ponzinibbio, but it's Morono who drops him at the end of the round uh, to end big. Second round, it's uh, Morono drops him briefly, and then Ponzinibbio connects with a right hand, goes to the leg with a kick, and then he's landing more. And it was a close round in the second. Um, I leaned towards Ponzinibbio in the second, but his corner did not. His corner told him, dude, you're down two rounds. You've got to finish him. So Ponzinibbio came out in the third, and 
Morono early wobbles him, follows with a right, and you're thinking this is it for Ponzinibbio, but he comes back, stuns Morono with a right hand, knocks him down with a follow-up, and then lands another big shot on top. The replay of this finish, he connects with this right hand, and dude, Alex Morono's face like contorts. It's like his jaw has been readjusted by this fist and he goes down and it is stopped at 229 of the third round. I cannot recall a fighter that was more furious with a stoppage than Alex Morono towards Jason Herzog. Dude, this guy was pissed in the cage to the point that Dana White had to get into the cage to calm him down and later said he was giving Morno his win bonus on top of his show money uh so Dana was just the money was just flying on Saturday night so there there you go uh turning the whole fighter pay issue around in one night is Dana White yes Dana White's the hero that the MMA world has just desperately needed for all these years saving the fighters from uh Dana White that's it. So it turns out they, they they can afford to give someone his whole money. It doesn't – the operation is not going to break down just because they pay the guys uh, one flat fee at the end of it. Ima- imagine going into a into your job and knowing, well, if I have a good day, I'm going to make this amount. But if I have a rough day, I'm making half of this today. Well, well don't, get it, don't get ahead of yourself yet, John. There's still a chance the UFC will fold uh, in the next week or so. But That's right. for some reason, I don't think that'll be the case. Um, all, the, all these performance bonuses, it's going to put them in the red this year. Uh, but yeah, uh, a big win for Santiago Ponzinibbio, who has been uh, hampered by a lot of injuries, has uh, didn't fight in 2019 or 2020. And you know he was coming off split decision losses to Jeff Neal last year and then uh, Michel Pereira back in May. So a much-needed win for him in the UFC. Well, I will I would say welterweight division, but this is really a catchweight that he fought at. Ponzinibbio always feels like a bit of a what if because right before he went away for that extended period of time, he looked so good and when he came back, it was clear that age and inactivity had taken their toll on him by that point. Uh and you know, he's had a pr- bit of a roller coaster run since coming back. There have been some really entertaining fights, some rough losses and this was really his first statement win in that time. I, I actually didn't think he looked very good for the majority of the fight. Uh I thought he was very inactive and in allowing Morono to get the better of their exchanges but getting rocked in that final round kind of woke him up and he just immediately surged forward with a big combination of right hands that led to the pretty brutal finish uh i'm not sure it was as questionable of a stoppage as brandon morano may have thought in the moment i didn't see any debate over this but man this guy was just (laughs) furious afterwards so anyway was uh at least financially taken care of for for this fight drickus duplessis Taking on Darren Till. Darren Till, another guy very much at a crossroads as he came into this fight, losing four of his last five, and he's been one and two since coming, uh, since returning to middleweight, uh, coming off losses to Robert Whitaker and then submitted by Derek Brunson, uh, prior, to, or sorry, after that. So he has not fought in over a year at, at, at this point. A Duplessis, three and oh in the UFC and last fought against Brad Tavares with a decision win in July at UFC 276. The first round, I didn't think Till was getting out of this round uh duplessis got a takedown and he just used darren till's head as a punching bag and it was the most bizarre thing because as till continually got hit he was not working to escape he was not trying to block he was just communicating with referee mark smith i'm fine i'm fine i'm fine bam 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 he's just eating these shots it is 
Um, it was something like 60 to 6 was the strike differential in this first round. Um, eventually, Till escapes, and he goes for a guillotine, losing it, and does at least end the round landing some strikes. But um, th- this, to me, was enough for a 10-8 round for uh, Duplessis, as he just dominated the first round, but also expended a ton of energy. So the second round begins, and Till's left eye is a mess from all the strikes he took. And Till clips him, lands an elbow, drills him with a knee, so Duplessis takes him down. Um, Darren Till's takedown defense is um, horrendous. It was like prime Carlos Condit levels here. Like anything Duplessis tried, even when he was exhausted, uh, was successful. It was it was rough. It's it's a major hole in his game and fighting at this level. Um, it's a hole that you are you are not going to navigate the, these waters uh, unless you significantly shore up. And again, like Patty Pimblett, like this is not a. You know, he he is young in relative terms, but in terms of career development, like this is somebody that is, um, you know, this is a guy that has had 23 fights prior to this already. So anyway, um, Till has a good round in the second. I think most uh, scored it for him. And then in the third round, there's a takedown by Duplessis, gets to mount, and Till just gives up his back and gets choked out. He taps at 243 of the third round. Afterwards, uh, Till, I guess, was communicating that he thought he tore his ACL. That has not been confirmed. That would be a major uh, a major injury for Till to have to undergo now if he, in fact, tore it. Um, but Duplessis gets the win here. I thought he looked like the much superior fighter than Darren Till. And Dana White stated afterwards that, you know, Darren Till's stock hasn't gone down at all. He's got the fight of the night. Didn't. But the fact is, this dude has now lost five of six, and I can't say that this was a, a ringing performance for Darren Till for the most optimistic uh, fan of Darren Till. Even the win in that stretch against Kelvin Gastelum was a fight in which, I mean, nothing really happened in that fight. He just he won based on being slightly more active. And his win before that, all those years ago, was a win against Stephen Thompson that not many people thought he won. So uh, I can't say I've seen much impressive uh, performances from Darren Till since the Donald Cerrone fight, which seems like a lifetime ago at this point. I I don't know what's next for him, especially if he's facing another lengthy injury. Yeah. I mean, a torn ACL, like he might not fight for a year if that was the the case. So, I mean, he's 29 years of old years of age. So it's like, he's got some youth on his side, but man, he he's got some miles on him and you know, the wrestling is a major problem at any weight class at, at this level in, in the UFC. Then we had, as uh, Cody Safdick dubbed it, the battle of the flat earther versus the round earther. Bryce Mitchell against Ilya Topuria, both undefeated. Uh, Mitchell with a record of 15-0, Topuria 12-0 in the UFC featherweight division. And uh, man, Ilya Topuria was great in this fight. Um, early on, he's just swinging and working in calf kicks using his jab. Mitchell goes for the body. He ends up 0 for 4 on takedowns in the first round, finally gets one near the end, and uh, Taporia wins the first round. The second, uh, Mitchell gets his best combo of the fight, uh, ending with a head kick, but then Taporia uh, knocks him down, gets to side control, landing more big shots, and then, boom, he just ragdolls Mitchell to the mat and just like, dude, you have never seen a man just control another with such ease. It was just, I am going to put you into the submission and you are going to just, 
lie here and take it. He applies this arm triangle and uh, tries to roll for the leg lock uh, as as the round ends. And then it's the third. Sorry, did this end in the second? This ended in the second. I've got my notes uh, mixed up here. When he gets the arm triangle, that's when he gets the uh, the submission here. At 310 of the second round, uh, Ilya Taporia, who I just thought looked awesome in this fight. Yeah, so going into this card, this was honestly the only bout on paper that I was really excited about. Just uh, stylistically, these these two fighters are uh, both undefeated. I, I think Bryce Mitchell, actually, they technically uncovered that he had a loss because uh, his the ultimate fighter semifinals bout against Brad Katona is technically a legal three-round bout or something, whatever. Okay. All of Mitch- in all of Mitchell's UFC fights, he's looked fantastic. And, and his last one was a dominant win against Edson Barboza, where... He showcased some solid abilities on the feet as well, but Taporia didn't care. He was just going in there throwing bombs. He had no respect for Mitchell's striking ability. He had no respect for his ground game, and he just demolished him here. It was an amazing performance, and Taporia is really, a really entertaining fighter. I mean, we can talk about his abilities. Like, obviously, he's very skilled, but this guy is super entertaining every time he gets in there. He's, he's becoming a fighter to watch uh, night in and night out. Yeah, uh, Taporia came into this fight ranked 14th. Bryce Mitchell was ninth. And then Taporia said he would like a title fight in his next fight. And if not, he wants to fight in Spain. Um, I don't think either of those are going to happen, but I can guarantee you this man is not fighting for the title next. But hey, shoot your shot, I guess. Yeah, I mean, why not? What, the next featherweight title fight is like what, Josh Emmett versus Arnold Allen or something for the interim title. Isn't that That's a right. thing? I mean, anyone can fight for these things these days. No, Taporia, he is an awesome fighter. He has a ton of potential. I don't think he's going to get what he wants next. I think he called out Brian Ortega, too, who is currently injured, as far as I know. So I'm not sure that's happening. But maybe a fight against the likes of Max Holloway. Is that impossible? I don't know. Calvin Cater, uh, the Korean zombie. Who knows? Tons of fun options for him. Those are options. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, Max Holloway will be very interesting to see how he is uh, handled in this uh, in this featherweight division. Uh, then we go into the prelims and a lot of focus on Raul Rosas Jr., who is the youngest fighter in UFC history. He won on Dana White's Contender Series on the previous season when he was 17. He has now turned 18 years old. So, I mean, he's getting up there. Uh, he's a man now. Yes, yes. And taking on Jay Perrin uh, at, at bantamweight. Now, I, I have a lot of uh, proceed with caution vibes with Raul Rosas Jr. He looked very good in this fight, but he is somebody that if you do, as as my friend John Ramdeen dubbed it, the sure dog test, when you go down this man's record and then you click on the opponents that he has fought, um, th- this is a guy that, yes, he has a he had a 6-0 record coming in here, but he has certainly fought some guys that are um, not, not exactly uh, demonstrating world beater here, but it remains to be seen. Um, he passed this test, but again, this is this is Jay Perrin. So, uh, but I think the hype is gigantic on, on this kid, and he very much is a kid at 18 years of age. He comes in, lifts him for the takedown, takes Perrin's back, gets the hooks in, flattens him out, tries for the rear naked choke, but Perrin breaks free, then reapplies it, getting the choke and submitting Perrin at 244 of the first round. So, um, you can certainly not criticize this performance on a major stage by uh, Raul. Rosas Jr., but this is, um, I just, 
you have to, I think, be cautious of someone that is this young in their career and in life and you're competing at the UFC and, you know, you just don't want to see that development uh, messed up. And he is going to be somebody that when someone comes in like this, like Eric, we've seen plenty of guys in this position and they get pushed so fast and they inevitably hit that roadblock and it can be very detrimental to your to to your potential when you're put in the fast lane so early. Yeah, I mean, his performance was uh, solid, very impressive that he was able to handle the pressure as he did in his first UFC fight. Uh, and at that age, he, he is undefeated. Uh, as you said, the opponent's not anything to write home about. I don't think you can uh, gauge too much about what his ceiling is right now from these performances. Uh, nor can I say uh, where his floor would be, so to speak. There, it's yeah. too hard to say right now. Yeah, that, it's like I'm not I'm not taking a, st- a strong stance yeah, either way. Exactly. But there, there will be people that come out of this and look at this as like this next future superstar. It's like, l- let's cool it. Like that's- I mean, it, it's always the same thing. Anyone under the age of like 23, it's, this is going to be the person who's going to beat John Jones' youngest champion record. And it's pretty much never going to be the case. Uh, that being said, I will say this crowd, they knew who this guy was. Totally. And they treated him like perhaps the biggest star on this card, aside from maybe Pimblet. Like he got the, a great reaction. I thought these two were the biggest stars on the show. And to, to the other point, like if Raul Rosas Jr. can develop, uh, this guy could be a major star one day, especially for Mexico. Um, you know, he, he's got a lot of intangibles that are, are going to make him very appealing as a star, but it's, it's very difficult because you can't you can't control outcomes and you can't uh, necessarily uh, protect guys. So we will see what how how this uh, fighter is handled uh, next year as well as he marches towards age nineteen. Hey, it's it's a tough division for him. Uh, he fights at bantamweight, but uh, there's no shortage of fun fights there, and there's a lot of name value too. So you can put this guy this guy in a somewhat prominent spot if you're trying to you know grow, grow his popularity. How does it feel to be part of the club now, Eric, where you're finally talking about fighters that are actually younger than you? You know what? It feels good. I feel like I can speak with just so much more authority as I'm just so much more experienced in life. Old old man Eric here. Uh, Jarzinho Rosenstruck and Chris Dacus. Not a whole lot to say about this one. (laughs) Dacus had one good moment. He connected with a right hand and Rosenstruck unloaded with him with the jab from hell. And then a knee sending Dawkins down and then nailed him with another. And dude, Dawkins is down. This thing is waved off in 23 seconds. Uh, Dawkins not playing the Alex Morono. What? How could you stop it so early? Dawkins was like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. And that was it. Rosenstruck, who had lost three of four, uh, bounces back here with a win. Uh, in a pretty, pretty impressive fashion here. Um, but this is like Rosenstruck. He's great if it ends early. And sometimes if it goes longer than that, um, uh, that's when he can, he can fall apart. But this was, this was a, a strong win for him, but a very quick one. I couldn't believe Dawkins's strategy here. He, he rushed Rosenstruck like, like he was Francis Ngannou. It was a completely insane strategy against one of the most powerful and skilled counter strikers in the entire division. And you immediately saw why no one would ever do this because yeah, he, he just got knocked out right away. Uh, well, you know, win for Rosenstruck. Uh, I don't know what more to say about this one. It was, it was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> that it was, yes. It was uh, not a, a, a gift to uh, a gift to Jarzinho Rosenstruck from Chris Dawkins right around Christmas time. Edmund Shabazian, who we have not seen since November of last year. So he was, you know, 
um, similar to what we were just talking about. Like here was a young prospect that they were just catapulting and suddenly he's headlining a fight night card against Derek Brunson and loses to Brunson, loses to Jack Hermanson and then loses to Nasruddin uh, Imavov. So suddenly he's got his back against the wall, took a year off, which I think is going to benefit him significantly of retooling himself, came back here. He's put on some size at middleweight and comes into the first round against Adolcha Lungiambula at uh, 185 pounds and Shabazian's going to the body using front kicks and then uh, Lungiambula shoots for a takedown, can't get it. Second round, uh, Shabazian is continuing with kicks to the body, circles, and then gets drilled with a knee uh, in the final minute. And, dude, Shabazian just unloads everything he has. He is just landing strike after strike, uh, mixes in some hammer fists, and was just leaving everything out there. I don't know if this guy would have had anything left for the third round. Didn't need it because uh, Chris Tyone, the referee, stopped it at 441 of the second round. So Shabazian gets his first win in three years. When you see it like that, wow, uh, three years. Uh, I, I guess so. That that fight against Derek Brunson was was a while ago now. But uh, yeah, yeah, he was a guy who was hot-shotted. He looked really impressive throughout his run to the uh, middleweight rankings. And then the, there was a series of tough losses there. Uh, to, to come back with this performance, I, I'm not really sure. Like, uh, Dolce is he's a dangerous fighter, but he's not quite on the level of the... Uh, opponents that beat Shabazian during that three-fight skid. So uh, he looked good, but uh, it's tough to be like, oh, he's back. He's going to be uh, fighting uh, top contenders on main cards again. And Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Future champion. Back on track. The future. The future. <laughs> We're going to have Raul Rosas Jr., uh, Edmund Shabazian, Patty Pimblett. I mean, here is your Mount Rushmore for uh, 2024 right there. The future is here, and also Glover Teixeira at 47 years of age, or however old he is now. Oh my goodness, what what shade you're throwing the poor man's way. Chris Curtis against uh, Joaquin Buckley, another middleweight fight. Uh, Curtis uh, was kind of slowing down as the first round progressed, and then Buckley is uh, landing more, but he took a brutal shot early in this round. I, I favored Curtis in the first round because of that. In the second, um, Buckley was having like a much more measured performance, very effective with his output, landed with a clean left. It was like he, to me, had like figured out his game plan. Everything was going well, and boom, Curtis drops him with a left hand, and it all goes out the window. Hammer fists him for the finish for the knockout at 249 of the second round. Uh, Joaquin Buckley, uh, fortunately, things were going until they weren't. That seems to be how most of his fights go, one way or the other. Always an entertaining fighter. I, I thought this was actually a pretty one-sided fight in Buckley's favor ahead of the finish. The, the output from Curtis was very low. Uh, I didn't think he was getting much done offensively. I thought Buckley looked fantastic, and then he got knocked out. So another big KO win for Chris Curtis. Uh, a, a big result for him after a really rough loss in his last one against Jack Hermanson, where he... He was losing his mind in frustration because Hermanson was was circling, and that's something he wasn't quite ready to contend with at the time. But uh, nice, nice for Curtis to get back on track with a with a knockout like this. He, he's been really entertaining since he came back or made his UFC debut, I should say. And then the early prelims, we had three fights: uh, Billy Quarantillo versus Alexander Hernandez, who at one point was like a a lightweight to watch, and then at one you know, point kinda... he was the future. <laughs> 
But the present, um, the, uh, some of the shine has come off. Alexander Hernandez. So he's cutting down to featherweight for this fight and uh, and starting anew. And in the first round, um, Hernandez is looking good. He's like good speed on him. He's letting his hands go after they separate. Got a takedown and cuts open Quarantilo with an elbow. And they they show the slow motion camera where you just see his head explode. Uh, Daniel Cormier is just getting uh, way too excited off of this replay. And in the second round, uh, Corlantilo jumps with a kick and gives up the position to Hernandez. Uh, but then Corlantilo is uh, shutting down takedowns, starting to land uh, strikes with an uppercut, and then takes Hernandez down. He's dropping a bunch of shots. He's warned about hitting him in the back of the head. So Corlantilo starts using uppercuts and elbows, and he's destroying Hernandez, mixes in some knees. A very strong finisher as Corlantilo gets the TKO win, 430 of the second round. Um so unfortunately for Alexander Hernandez, it is a it is another loss at a new weight class. And this is somebody who maybe will be a trivia answer one day about a guy who does own a knockout victory over Benil Dariush in uh, 42 seconds. But unfortunately, that was uh, almost five years ago. Yeah, I mean, this ended up being a pretty typical Alexander Hernandez uh, fight, despite the uh, the featherweight weight class here. I mean, he always looks fantastic to begin a fight, but around that midway point of round two, he typically begins to the gas. And uh, Billy Q finished the fight not long after. Uh, Quarantillo, he's a he's a fighter who can just fight at a pretty crazy pace for forever, seemingly. So, uh, no surprises there, but a very impressive finish nonetheless. T.J. Brown against Eric Silva was a featherweight fight. T.J. Brown is, uh, during his entrance, John Anik notes that this has been a tough camp for T.J. Brown because his coach, James Krause, was supposed to be in his corner, but for obvious reasons, he is not. Very obvious reasons that we will So obvious, discuss. we are not going to get into it on the broadcast and uh, and talk about it. Um, but Dana White was asked about it afterwards, and boy, he gave uh, just a stone-cold answer that... You do this kind of stuff, you're going to federal fucking prison. <laughs> Dana never, White any shortage, never any shortage of uh, quotable quotes from Mr. Dana White. Um, I, I thought that TJ Brown uh, won the first two rounds here. Um, uh, in the third, he put Silva on his back and eventually got an arm triangle uh, for the for the submission win here. Um, decent fight, not like super memorable. It was a fight. Yeah, not too much to say about this one. Uh, it pretty much came... I thought it was a competitive fight, but as it progressed, Silva began to gas, and Brown picked up the victory. And our final fight to talk about, Cameron Simon versus Steven Kozlo in a bantamweight action. Uh, Simon, 21 years of age, um, fighting out of uh, South Africa, and then won on the Contender Series back in August. So the first round, Kozlo uh, gets a takedown. He's in half guard and tries to go for the back, loses it, and then Simon moves to the neck, and Kozlo uh, ends up uh, ending the round with strikes and gets the mount position. Second round, we see uh, the, the the major spot here was uh, Simon, who is uh, controlling the round, drills him with an illegal knee. And this one, like, there was no dispute about this one. This was just an awful knee. And Kozlo was just in another time zone for multiple minutes. And the point is deducted, but he continues. So I had this as a 9-9 round. And then in the third, uh, Cameron Simon took it out of the judges' hands, uh, a Dana White favorite. And he's landing big shots as Kozlo gets to his feet, connects with a big knee, and and follows up with more strikes and ends it at 413 of the third round as Cameron Simon gets the victory.
Yeah, I thought this was a pretty fun fight to begin the night. Uh, Simon was definitely in need of a finish if he wanted to win the fight by the third round. It, it could have been a draw, of course, if we went to the scorecards. But uh, a solid a solid performance to begin uh, what was a uh, lengthy streak of finishes on this card. Yeah, I mean, we were just getting finish after finish after finish. I'm thinking, man, we're, we're going to have an, an early evening tonight. And then the last two fights, I mean, we got um, – that was uh, the majority and uh, two highly discussed decisions as a result of it. But uh, how did you feel overall about the UFC's final pay-per-view of the year, a bunch of changes to this card? Um I would imagine that as a pay-per-view, I'm sure this did not do a giant business, which I'm sure uh, the UFC was not in a giant hurry to book a rematch of this main event either. Yeah, definitely mixed emotions about this one. Uh, going into the card, this is perhaps the most unappealing lineup they've ever made people pay for. Like There was negative star power on this one. Even the originally scheduled like ghosts of Robbie Lawler and Alexander Gustafson would have added something in terms of name value, as sad as those fights may have turned out. Um, as the fight, as the card progressed, I thought, like, when you get 10 finishes in a row, some really dramatic ones, too, you're, you're going to have a good time, even if it's not the most exciting matchups on paper. And, and I was having a good time for most of the night. Uh, the Gordon versus Pimblet fight was very fun as well. And while I didn't think the uh, the main event was quite as uh, horrendous as Dana White thought it was, it, perhaps a bit of a cold note to leave off the show. It, it was a bit of a mixed bag and probably a pay-per-view that most of us will be forgetting. Well, afterwards, uh, Dana White, uh, in, in addition to making the new light heavyweight title fight for UFC 283 next month in Brazil, um, he added that um, they are aiming to do Leon Edwards and Kamaru Usman in London at UFC 286. So after making such a big deal about how they're scouting stadiums, he just said, yeah, the weather. I, I don't like running when, when the weather could uh, cause a problem. So there you go. Uh, because the weather is a new anomaly uh, to deal with. Like a couple months ago, like the weather wasn't a thing. So he realized one day, you know what? It rains some places, so we can't do a stadium. He spends um, too much time in Nevada. He, you know, he's not used to it anymore. Uh, he all but confirmed Aljamain Sterling and Henry Cejudo for March 4th and then got very upset when he was uh, uh, said, I never said the Conor McGregor was going to fight Michael Chandler. So he uh, he he shut that one down in terms of uh, uh, being a, a definitive uh, regardless. But those are some of your notes uh, coming out of things. Uh, our next card, the final one of the year that I know uh, Eric will be watching intently features. Sean Strickland against Jared Cannonier, as well as uh, Demir Ismagulov against Armand Sarukian in the top two fights. And then they get several weeks off. They'll kick off the year with Kelvin Gastelum and Nasruddin Imavov at the UFC Apex. And then the next time we'll be here is uh, the weekend of January 21st when they go to Brazil, which now has uh, Glover Teixeira, Jamal Hill, and the fourth fight between Devison Figueiredo and Brandon Moreno. How many fights will they have in their career? Do you, will they hit seven? Uh, man, uh, I, I think a best of seven series may be on the table here between the two. Uh, like once you get to five, you you got to go to seven. I mean, just, oh, definitely, just definitely. to do it. Like once you hit five, it's like we're not slowing down until we hit seven. We've, we've got to do it. Given this flyweight division, I think a decent chance they make it to seven. Oh, there's so many great fighters in the flyweight division that I'd love to see some of them get a title shot to shake up the division. But uh, I I can't say with any positivity that this will actually be the final fight between Davidson, Figueredo, and Brandon Moreno. And, and hey, I'm looking forward to the fight, despite uh, the fact that it's happened four times in a row now for Figueredo, at least. Uh, they've been good well, fights. Like, yeah, I'm not complaining either. 
Um, some other ones on that card, Gilbert Burns against Neil Magny, Jessica Andrade against Lauren Murphy, and the Eric Marcotte fight of the night. Ihor Potera versus Mauricio Shogun Hua. Oh, my God. We were spared uh, your, uh, your your fight with uh, Ovin St. Preux and Alexander Gustafsson. Yeah, we're getting something uh, far worse. I mean, pe- I love Shogun. I love Shogun, but um, I don't love watching Shogun fight anymore. Uh, it's either going to be very sad or very boring in all likelihood. Um, oh, I, I don't even like to see his name on the lineup anymore. <laughs> Well, he is uh, he is coming into Brazil. He's uh, winding things down, uh, and he's coming off losses to Paul Craig and the aforementioned Ovin St. Peru. So we will see what, what Shogun has in store in the year 2023. Uh, it'll be something to behold. Um, as always, um, on these shows, we open it up to your questions, those that are uh, joining us in the live chat. And we always get the most in-depth questions on these shows from Brandon from New Jersey, who wants to know, good afternoon, Eric. Did you finish that Dr. Umar interview yet? So, John, I know you're familiar with the sensation of uh, Brandon from New Jersey sliding into your DMs and sending you a complete insanity and regularity. It's, well, it's, a, it's a given on a daily basis. Brandon has a habit of sending me videos of Dr. Umar Johnson and Buster Rhymes, and uh, I'd never watch any of them, so I can't actually respond. But uh, for anyone who's curious out there, uh, you can take a a peek into the mind of Brandon from New Jersey and look up Dr. Umar Johnson yourself. Well, there you go. A a paid commercial here from Brandon from New Jersey, which we will uh, gladly accept uh, from the man himself. But there you go. That's uh, that's going to wind down our UFC coverage for this year. A uh, quite the year in uh, mixed martial arts. So, Eric, we uh, we want to thank you as always for uh, stepping in here, joining us. All your great reports on the site. You can catch his whole rundown of UFC 282 up on the site. And of course, uh, we have a few more fight cards this year, including that uh, Rise and Bellator card that's happening on New Year's Eve in Japan. Do you think that one's going to get a lot of attention, or do you feel it's going to kind of just come and go because Bellator is in such an interesting spot, especially with that CBS card next year. Like it seems time to make a big move for them where I, I feel their profile has diminished so much over these couple of years. I agree completely. It feels like Bellator doesn't get uh, even a bit of the traction that they were maybe even four years ago. I don't think this card's going to be a, a huge deal. Um, uh, the rise in New Year's Eve shows, they're they're always kind of crazy and fun. I might actually end up watching it, but it's like New Year's Eve is a tough day to run, I think. E- even if the time zones don't completely match up with ours, of course, it- it's always one where it's like, uh, is this what I want to be doing all night? Is it? If I'm not mistaken, like it's because it's in Japan, it would be the day of New Year's Eve. But I think they're are, are they airing it live on Showtime or are they airing it on delay? Late? I think they're airing it that night, like at 8 p.m. or something on New Year's Eve, I think. But don't quote me on that. I have absolutely no clue. But these these rising New Year's Eve shows often go like uh, fifty hours, so perhaps it'll just air at New Year's Eve for every time zone. Let's uh, let's quickly look this up if we have a, a start time for this on New Year's Eve. Oh, of course we don't, but uh, it's happening on on the thirty first. So uh, l- look out for that. There's some very good fights on this card, but I don't know if this one is going to. Uh, capture the uh the mixed martial arts audience as a whole the cbs card i'm more interested to see like what what kind of interest there is in non-ufc mma on on a big stage uh, especially with fedor and bader which i know you've just been counting down the days for since their last fight 
Okay, so I want I want uh, you to copy and paste everything I just said about Shogun and replace the name Shogun with the name Fedor, and it will be the exact same thing. Uh, I, I'm I always root for Fedor. Uh, it would be a, a beautiful end to his career to uh, win the Bellator heavyweight title in his final fight, but I, I don't know if that's on the cards. All right, that's going to wrap it up, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for the UFC 282 post show. You can find Eric uh, on Twitter, but more importantly, in the Discord. The man lives there. You can always uh, hit him up with your Dr. Umar interviews or with uh, uh, Dark Souls 3 if he is uh, engaging in that as well. Uh, as the chat room tells me, I feel like our whole chat room is just inside jokes about Eric that I try and navigate. That's that's the fun of this show. That, that is mostly the case. I can't believe we just got a Dark Souls 3 reference from John Pollock on a post-show. A truly monumental just, day. That's it. Monday night, Way and I will be back with Rewind to Raw. Um, did you watch any Deadline or Final Battle on Saturday, Eric? Uh, I watched Final Battle. I haven't been able to catch anything else yet just due to time, but I'll probably watch everything throughout the weekend. The, the Briscoes FTR match was phenomenal. Yeah, pretty, pretty incredible match that they had. You can uh, you can catch Way and uh, Kate's review on the Post Wrestling Cafe. And Braden and Davey of Poison Rana have their deadline post show up on the site now. So you can catch up on all the major events from this past weekend. And that will do it for us. Thanks to everyone for joining us live. And that concludes the UFC 282 post show. <laughs>